This is the sermon podcast of Lord of Life Lutheran Church in Columbus, Ohio, where we proclaim God's extravagant grace, radical inclusion, and relentless compassion. Join us for worship Sundays at 8 a.m., 9 a.m., or 11.15 a.m. For more information, please visit our website at www.acceptingall.com. Good morning. The first lesson is from the second chapter of Isaiah. The word that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be to God. Grace and peace be yours through Jesus, who is coming again. Two questions. What is it that you really want? And are you willing to wait for it? I don't know whether you've noticed this or not, but a lot of us are not very good at waiting anymore. We know what we want, and we want it right now. Basically, every commercial that you've ever watched boils down to the same thing. You know you want this, (laughs) and you could have it right now. First we want it, then we get it, then we wonder why we wanted it and why we got it. I've spent an enormous amount of my life waiting when I think about it. Waited in doctor's lines and hospital waiting rooms, ticket lines, security lines, a way to get the oil change. Waited for babies, waited for ball practices that ran late, waited for teenagers to come in, waited on tables, waited for term papers. I've even waited for the shoe to drop. I've probably spent years of my life waiting. You would think that I might have gotten good at it by now, that I might have learned how to embrace it or meditate, lower my blood pressure, but the truth is I haven't. My heart rate when I'm waiting typically goes up. It's been roughly 700,000 days since Jesus ascended into heaven. 700,000 days since he told his disciples that you are going to be my witnesses and I will come back. Seriously, 700,000 days. 1,986 times 352 days. So is he coming back or not? What is it that you really want? And what are, you, are you willing to wait? I confess that I've done this to Anne many times. Too often I have stood in line somewhere or maybe even been seated somewhere. And then we wait and we wait and we wait. My blood pressure starts to go up and I just call it quits. Hey, honey, I'm done with this. I don't need it that badly. Sometimes it's just easier to... Forget the whole deal than it is to wait. And I think 
that the whole body of Christ would prefer to forget about this Jesus coming back thing. 700,000 days is a long time to wait. Just bury it underneath an avalanche of getting ready for Christmas or something like that. And yes, you can definitely cherry pick your religion. We live in a country that does that. But there's that thorny little phrase in apostolic creed that just nags. He will come to judge the living and the dead. First Christians, they lived in anticipation of Christ's imminent return. They built their whole lives around that idea that Christ was coming back and he was coming back soon. We don't know when, but he's coming back soon. Paul actually counseled against marriage in the early church. He thought that everyone should be single. You don't hear that a lot when people discuss traditional marriage. His argument was that since Jesus is coming back soon, why would anybody waste their time getting married? They had seen God become incarnate, human, at Bethlehem. They dropped their nets, their tax ledgers. They walked away from their families and their communities to follow Jesus and to follow his vision, what he called his kingdom, where everyone would be welcomed and everyone would be loved and included. They caught a glimpse of a new world, a new way, extravagant grace, radical inclusion, relentless compassion. And then they watched all of those dreams die when he died on the cross. But he rose from the dead. Uh, he rose from the dead, that's worth saying, because none of this makes sense without that. And then, after he'd risen from the dead... They go through the whole thing again. Death by departure this time. Says he'll be back, but is listed out of their sight and disappears, never to be seen again. But 50 days later, on the day of Pentecost, his spirit comes all over them, extravagantly, radically, relentlessly, fills them with the gifts and with the talents, and they have witnessed all of that. And they're living in the afterglow of those events. And they expect, they anticipate, they hope, they trust, they cling to the promise that sometime soon God will once again invade their lives and God will usher in a new way, a new day, a new heaven, a new earth, graciously, mercifully sort this whole world out that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. But Matthew, the writer of our gospel account throughout this new year, Matthew is writing his gospel 50, 60, 70 years after that. Think that through for a moment. It is the first great generational shift of the church. There will be many more, but this is the first one. Eyewitnesses to all of those events, they are disappearing. So Matthew writes an account. He writes it down in part to encourage them to keep waiting for Christ's return. Their world is a mess. Uh, when Matthew writes, the world is definitely a mess. The temple has been destroyed at this point. The occupying forces of Rome are putting the screws to people and siphoning their money and their resources. By the time of Matthew's writing, Judaism has actually rebelled. Israel's rebelled against Rome. They took their plows and they beat them into weapons so that they could fight Rome. And it was heroic. It was very heroic. Some of you who know the story, the Maccabees and Masada, some of you might have been there. Uh, you know the story, but the bottom line is Rome crushed them. Rome kicked their butts. And the followers of Jesus did it a whole different way. Um, they, um, they began, quote, peacefully waiting 
began turning the other cheek when people scapegoated and blamed them. They were busy feeding the poor and being fed to the lions. In other words, they just waited. They waited, prayed, living as if Jesus was coming back any moment and we ought to be living and be his witnesses until he returns. And at the time Matthew writes, this is a legitimate question. So where is Jesus when we need him? 50, 60 years of waiting, things keep getting worse and worse. The church, the community of Jesus is becoming impatient. So Matthew tries to comfort them. I like this little analogy. You might not. I think he's the Harry Carey of the waiting church. Keeping everybody excited after one losing season after another. 700,000 days. What difference has all of our waiting made? Where's the reign of Jesus? The kingdom of God on earth. Where's the peace and the love and the mercy and the justice? Do you have an expectation, an anticipation that anything will be different the day after your Christmas celebrations? Or for that matter, after our celebrations on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day? Does our waiting, uh, whether we wait and how we wait, does it make any difference? Advent is a time when we rekindle our hope in the coming of Christ. Advent is a time to rekindle your hope in the coming of Christ. Advent is a time that we look around at the mess of this world and what it's in, and we remember the promises of God, and we rekindle a hope that God will not abandon us, but Christ will return. Maybe it's paying attention to what we're actually saying at our meals when we, when we pray, come Lord Jesus, be our guest. I will confess that there are nights when Ann and I will sit down and we say, did we pray yet? Advent is a time to look across the dinner table, maybe turn off the television set, or across the workstation or the classroom or the warehouse or the church, and to fervently pray, come Lord Jesus, be our guest. Heaven's the time to just time out from everything, to sit quietly, light some candles, read maybe even a little scripture. Just sit and reflect about what is it that we really want and this world really needs and wait for God, who's the only one who can bring it. And I understand how corny some of them are, and frankly, they're really corny these days. And frankly, a 700,000-day 700, Advent candle would be really interesting to see what that looked like, that, that little calendar doesn't make much sense in some ways, but when you open that little box and you read a little bit of Scripture, a little piece of chocolate, there's kind of a memory that this isn't it, that we're waiting. We're waiting for something, something big, to put some motion and some words. Dear God, we're, we're waiting. Uh, the truth is, we're going to hear a lot about them in the coming weeks, but I'm not John the Baptist. I'm clearly not John the Baptist. I have not... I've thought about it. I have not jumped away from culture and just moved out in the country and abandoned everything, point fingers at people. I get that a whole lot of the church's practice at times can look like a bunch of kooks crying out in the wilderness. But Advent is the time that we can rekindle our hope in the coming of Jesus. We can help each other stay awake, stay alert. 
We can encourage one another. We can look for Christ and his kingdom coming among us in words spoken and bread eaten and wine sipped and candles lit and love shared. To lose hope, let's just say it directly, to lose hope is to be unhappy, is to be miserable. It doesn't matter how much or how little you have. If you don't have any hope, no matter how much you pile underneath a tree on Christmas Day, if there is no hope, you're going to be unhappy. To give up believing and hoping that God has a different vision, a different plan, is to be lost. We gather here because we, we know that it is impossible to stay awake by ourselves. We need one another. We need one another the way children need parents, to encourage each other to wait, to teach us patience. So let me tell you this directly. The substance of our hope is Jesus. And it's not baby Jesus. Frankly, baby Jesus is just a little plastic figurine. The substance of our hope is Jesus who suffered, who died, who rose from the dead, who ascended into heaven, and who has promised to come again. And waiting is really difficult. And I know that we cover that up. We cover it up with tinsel and trappings and busyness and bluster. And I also know that the very best thing that you can give yourself or your families or your friends and those who come after you is not a thing. It's hope. So, as odd as it looks, we light a candle or two or three or four. And we say a prayer. And we comfort each other, and we poke each other when we start to nod, and we prod each other when we slip off the path. The 700,000 days, it just seems like forever. And it's dark, it's dark. But this might be the moment when Jesus returns. May God bless us, may God bless you, may God bless the whole world this Advent. May we discover what it is that we really want And may we have the courage and the patience to wait. Amen.